Episode 27. What has gone on in the rest of the world while we've been talking about Rome for 12 episodes. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, so first of all, yeah, we definitely lingered a bit too long on Rome for a while there. I'm going to pick up the pace now for a while. So some of those Rome episodes were also kind of long, and I'm going to try to keep everything shorter from now on, trying to aim for under 20 minutes. I want to point out that this episode not only marks the end of me talking about Rome, for the most part, it also marks the end of the ancient world. You can kind of divide Western history into three periods. There's the ancient world, which starts with creation and ends in September of AD 476 with the fall of Rome. And you also have the modern world, which basically starts with the Enlightenment around AD 1700 or so. Anything in between those dates of 476 and 1700 is essentially the Middle Ages. All of those dates are kind of fuzzy and, you know, AD 477, the year after Rome fell, was probably a lot more like the ancient world than it was like the Middle Ages, but you got to divide somewhere. The fall of Rome is an easy landmark for that kind of division. So now we're moving into the Middle Ages and we're going to stay here for not quite 20 episodes or so. But before we get into the Middle Ages and all the cool barbarian stuff that happens there, like Vikings, let's take stock of the rest of the world and how it was doing in AD 476. Because while we were focused on Rome, there was actually stuff going on in the rest of the world. I want to start by looking at Byzantium. By 476, Constantinople was seeing itself as less and less Roman. It was also influenced by Persian culture, Turkish, well, Asia Minor culture, Chinese, Arab, and Egyptian cultures, those had much more of an impact on it than actually Rome itself ever did. In fact, Rome wasn't the biggest influence on Byzantine culture. Really, Greece was the biggest influence. Greek was the language of the Byzantine Empire, and it was deeply influenced by Greek architecture and philosophy. The mixture of influences affected the culture, the government, and the church that developed there. In AD 451, before the fall of Rome, the church met together in another council, the Council of Chalcedon, which further defined the full deity and humanity of Jesus, but it also divided the church into five large areas, each with its own patriarch. The patriarch of Rome, of course, becomes the pope, but the patriarch of Constantinople kept the title patriarch, and to this day there is still a patriarch in Istanbul. He is the leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which developed very differently than the Roman Catholic Church. Although they were quite different, the churches considered themselves one church until they split in AD 1054 in what was known as the Great Schism. But we aren't there yet. One of the things that did divide the two branches of the church from East and West was the widespread adoption in the West of a famous Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate. The Eastern Orthodox Church used a Greek compilation of the scriptures, and Greek was the original language of all the New Testament books. But the Latin-speaking West began to mostly use the Vulgate, 
which had been translated from Greek to Latin by St. Jerome around A.D. 400. The Greek and Roman churches have developed differently ever since, and now they're quite different, although their roots were similar. It's worth noting that both the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Eastern Orthodox Church were not just religious institutions, especially during the Middle Ages. They were both very powerful politically, wielding enormous influence over the lives of the people, the governments, and even the emperors. The Eastern Orthodox Church was the official religion of the Byzantine Empire during its entire existence. The Byzantine Empire lasted longer than even the Roman Empire. It lasted for over a thousand years, enduring until 1453 when Byzantium finally fell to the Muslim Ottoman Empire. There were two main high points during the Byzantine Empire. One was the reign of Justinian I from 527 to 565 AD, and the Macedonian dynasty later from AD 867 to 1056. During Justinian's reign, the, the Byzantine Empire reached its biggest geographical extent and its highest population, briefly. That was short-lived, uh, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But at one point, Justinian controlled nearly as much territory as Rome at its peak. Not quite, but close. Now, going back to my main point here, the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, developed on its own, separate from Rome, and with an increasingly non-Roman identity. So, at the fall of Rome, the eastern Roman Empire, the beginnings of the Byzantine Empire, was actually doing pretty well. Let's look at a few other important cultures in the world and what they were up to in September of 476. First of all, the Jews. Their homeland had been completely destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, and the temple had been torn down, down to the foundation. Most of the Jews, not all, but most of the Jews were scattered, and they settled in cities all over Europe and around the Mediterranean. By 476, there were substantial Jewish populations in Antioch, which is in Syria, in Alexandria, in Egypt, and in many of the cities of Asia Minor, or Turkey as it's now known. Many Jews also immigrated to Spain, and the others began to migrate to cities further into Europe, although the, the bulk of this northern European migration will happen after the fall of Rome during the Middle Ages. The Jews in these non-Jewish cities usually managed to keep their own culture, and they saw it as important to carry on their traditions and to marry within Judaism. Jewish culture changed, of course, after the destruction of the temple, and the focus of Judaism became the local synagogue and the study of the law, the Talmud and the Mishnah. The Talmud and the Mishnah are commentaries on the law, and they're often commentaries on other commenters' comments. Sometimes it goes several commenters deep. Much of this revolves on how to correctly understand and implement Jewish law. Jews, because they were still trying to keep the law, often stayed to themselves and didn't fully integrate into the lives of the cities that they settled in, and so they were often viewed with a bit of suspicion. Some places that had originally welcomed them later turned on them and drove them out. Spain, for example. The Middle Ages end up being pretty hard on the Jews. Come to think of it, so is the ancient world. And so is the modern world. What do you know? It's kind of a wonder that they're still together in some way as a co cohesive culture. To the east of the land where Judea had been, over by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, was the kingdom of Parthia, a longtime enemy of Rome. By the time of the fall of Rome, the Parthians had been replaced by the Sasanian Empire, although there was a lot of cultural continuity. 
the Sasanians ruled from modern-day Iran, and they controlled modern-day Iraq, parts of Asia, the north coast of the Arabian Peninsula, and part of Syria for a time. This is kind of the golden age of Persian culture, with impressive architecture, mathematical and scientific advances, and their own distinct philosophy and religion. The official religion of the Sassanid Empire was Zoroastrianism, which was its own type of monotheism, different from Judaism and Christianity, but still teaching that there was one true creator, God. Sassanid philosophy and religious belief will become important in the later growth of Islam, which we will get to, actually, next episode. Further east of Persia, there was a substantial empire in India. The Gupta Empire ruled over most of India from the 300s to the late 600s AD, and this is known also as the Golden Age of India. It was a mostly peaceful, prosperous empire and an important part of the trade route between China and the countries to the west. During the Gupta Empire, several of the important texts of Hinduism were written down in what became their final form. Two of the most important texts of Hinduism are the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Both the Ramayana and the Mahabharata are epic poems, and they are long. The Mahabharata is the longest epic poem in the history of the world, at over 1.8 million words. For comparison, the whole Bible is about 1 million words. The Bhagavad Gita, which is perhaps the most famous work of Hinduism, is part of the Mahabharata. These two works had existed before the Gupta Empire, but during this golden age, they were written down in Sanskrit, and this became sort of the authorized version of each book. So at the time of the fall of Rome, India, as well as Persia, were in the middle of sort of their own golden ages. Going a bit further east, we get to China. In China at this time, there were two ruling dynasties, the Wei in the north and the Liu Song in the south. This part of Chinese history is known as Imperial China, as opposed to Ancient China and Modern China. Ancient China ends around 220 BC, and Modern China starts around 1921, so anything in between is part of Imperial China. It's kind of like the Middle Ages that way. This was also a relatively peaceful period for Chinese history, and it's worth noting that somewhere around 476, about the same time as the fall of Rome, Buddhism was introduced to China by an influential Indian monk named Bodhidharma. Buddhism becomes the largest religious influence in China, somewhat fusing with the teachings of Confucius, who had lived earlier. He lived around 500 BC, about the same time as Buddha. Confucius's Chinese name, by the way, is Kung Fu Tzu, which is way cooler than Confucius, but that's the way it came into English. Buddhism and Confucianism become the two dominant philosophical ideals of China with Buddhism being more about philosophy, spirituality, and your internal life, and Confucianism being more about politics and interpersonal relationships. Anyway, Buddhism begins to infiltrate China about the time of the fall of Rome. Chinese culture will revolve around these two ideals until those were forcibly removed later by communism during the Cultural Revolution of the 1950s and the 1960s. Okay, so we've been moving east from Rome. Let's keep going east. In Japan... It was also sort of a golden age, known as the Heian period. They were in a peaceful period that lasted more than 400 years, and there was a lot of development of Japanese culture and literature at this time. Many of Japan's oldest works were written down in this period. 
about 100 years after Buddhism had came to China, around 476 at that time, about 100 years later, it came to Japan as well, and it also made a marked influence on Japanese culture. The traditional Japanese religion, which is now known as Shinto, absorbed much Buddhist philosophy into its practices. Zen Buddhism, which is the most commonly known type of Buddhism in the West today, developed in Japan as a result of the fusion of Shinto and Buddhism. I'd love to talk more about Buddhism, Zen, Hinduism, and Zoroastrianism, but that's maybe beyond the content of this podcast. Maybe it's the content of a whole other podcast. A short walk through our many religions, or something like that. I'll have to think about that. That sounds actually interesting to me, at least to me. Okay, going further east. Wait, we're as far east as you can go. That's just the Pacific Ocean once you go east from Japan. Oh, right, there's this whole other undiscovered continent out there. So, what was happening in the New World at the time when Rome fell? In South America, the Mayan Empire was in the middle of what is known as its Classic Period, which had started around AD 250, so before the fall of Rome. The period of Mayan history before the Classic Period is known as the Pre-Classic Period, and after that Classic Period is known in startling cleverness as the post-classical period. So in a way, we're also in the Mayan Middle Ages. Mayan culture was very well developed along the western side of South America. It was built as an interconnected network of independent city-states ruled by individual kings who are usually considered divine. The Mayans had a very developed culture and were one of the first cultures to use a zero in mathematics. Their written language was by far the most well-developed in the New World at this time. They also had an elaborate religious system that involved human sacrifice. The Mayans' chief rival in the New World was the huge Mexican city of Teotihuacan, which is where Mexico City is today, but it was mostly just a trade rivalry. They were far enough removed that they didn't fight very much. The Mayan culture survived until they met the Spanish conquistadors, and they also met smallpox. But once again, we are getting ahead of ourselves. That's over a thousand years away from where we are now, around the fall of Rome in AD 476. Well, there's a lot of other interesting cultures that are developing at this time, including the Vikings, the Angles, the Jutes, the Scottish tribes, etc. But we will look at them all in due time. There's one other historical event from around this time, though, that I want to mention because it sort of sets the stage in a way for the dark tone of the Dark Ages in Western Europe. The year A.D. 536, not that long after the fall of Rome, the year A.D. 536 has been called by some scholars the worst year to be alive. It really was kind of alone in that category, maybe until 2020, which also kind of sucked. What happened in A.D. 536? Well, the sun kind of stopped shining for about a year and a half. There are quite a few records of it happening from all over the world, and no one is quite sure what caused it. The most likely candidate, though, is a volcanic eruption, perhaps of the Krakatoa volcano. In any case, for more than a year, the sun was dim, temperatures dropped, the weather was extremely irregular, and there were a lot of crop failures. A writer in Rome, a guy named Cassiodorus, who was writing in 538, two years after that happened, described it like this. He said, The sun's rays were weak, and they appeared bluish in color. At noon, no shadows from people were visible on the ground. The heat from the sun was feeble. The moon 
even when it was full, was empty of its splendor. There was a winter without storms, a spring without mildness, and a summer without heat. There was prolonged frost and unseasonable drought. The seasons seemed to be all jumbled up together. He described the sky as blended with alien elements, just like cloudy weather except prolonged. It was stretched like a hide across the sky, and he prevented the true colors of the sun and the moon from being seen, and prevented the sun's warmth. There were frosts during harvests, which made apples harden and grapes sour. It does sound like he's describing volcanic ash drifting through the sky and blocking out the sunlight. Anyway, this volcanic winter ushered in a period of disastrous harvests and a lot of famine and starvation. This lasted for several years. To make matters worse, this was followed up by the first real pandemic known as the Plague of Justinian. It started in AD 451, while Europe was still struggling with the effects of the volcanic winter. The Plague of Justinian, as it's known, was probably the Black Plague, and it spread all over Europe as well as going east as far as China. The Black Plague, or Black Death, is called that because while the victim is still alive, parts of their body start to die and turn black. Medically, this is called necrosis. Fingers, toes, legs, lips, ears, etc. start to die from lack of circulation, and the victim's extremities turn black. Then they start to rot and turn gangrenous. And it stinks. It's pretty gross. Google it if you're not grossed out by that kind of thing. The combination of volcanic winter followed by the Black Plague killed off an estimated 25% of the population of Europe. This kind of catastrophic population collapse is part of why the Dark Ages were dark. People were really struggling to get by, and thus there was this huge drop-off in all of the things that mark a prosperous culture, like art, literature, architecture, the development of infrastructure, etc. That kind of stuff did take place, but on a much, much smaller scale, and it wasn't really until the Renaissance, almost a thousand years later, that we begin to see the rebirth of art and architecture all over Southern Europe. But like I said, it wasn't dark all over, and in some places around the world, things were still growing. Next episode, we'll look at one of the most dramatic and substantial changes and growths that took place in the Middle Ages, and that is the birth and the rapid spread of Islam, which will sweep across the Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, Asia Minor, and up into Europe, where its expansion was finally stopped by a guy named Charles the Hammer, and also by Dracula. Dracula.